uh, as we finish the book of Colossians, it's interesting as I reflect on this past week, we had a meeting with Seth. The elders got together and we had a meeting with Seth on Wednesday. Uh, it was our first time kind of as a group seeing him for several months now. And of course, we'd had some contact with him here and there, but you know, it'd been pretty, you know, we'd been pretty uh, isolated from Seth and his family over a couple of weeks. So it was great to get back together with him. It was great to see him, to meet with him, to hear from him kind of what uh, the sabbatical had meant for him and his family, to kind of hear a good report from him. And, uh, but it was mostly just friends getting together, right? You know, we, we got, and got together, and, and as much as we talked about church stuff, it was really just a gathering of friends who got together and kind of enjoyed each other's fellowship. And we talked some church stuff, but it wasn't one of those church meetings where there was any conversation about budgets or, or ministries or things that, uh, you know, you might think of when elders get together to talk policies or anything like that, visions for the church. We weren't really talking about any of those topics. Instead, we were talking about you, right? I mean, because what Seth really wanted to know when he got back from sabbatical wasn't about, you know, are people still giving? It wasn't, you know, is this ministry still going well? It wasn't any of those things. He wanted to know about you. He wanted to hear how you were doing. And so we had spent a long time that evening kind of talking about the comings and the goings of the church, the things that, that are happening. Uh, we talked, of course, about, you know, just as Seth's mentioned, how all these great leaders had stepped up over the course of the summer to help lead the church, you know, the beautiful worship that has been led by Sheridan and Luke week in and week out here, the, the team that they put together to do that. The incredible work, you know, that continues to be done by the road crew week in and week out as they come in and they set up, many times kind of undermanned in that role. Sharon doing just a marvelous job keeping the church running and keeping the church going as our chief administrator and, and putting all the work in that she does there. Ross and Jordan back there in the kids' ministry who essentially almost served back there pretty much every week this summer as they kind of manage the crazy summer schedules that, uh, that result in a lot of people being out on vacations and so on and so forth. But in addition to that, all the other people who also stepped in and filled in roles and kind of changed weeks with folks to serve back there in the kids' ministry or to find other places that they could serve. The folks that went on the mission trip with the youth and who chaperoned that mission trip with the youth. I mean, what incredible work they did spending their time pouring into our youth as they went and served in San Antonio. I mean, we talked about a lot of things about you, about the faithfulness of the church, about some of the needs in the church that were there, about some of the ways that other people in the church had met those needs. There were all kinds of things that came up, all kinds of things that were reported back to Seth about you. And that's what he wanted to hear. That's what he wanted to know. Because he loves you as a people. And I think it's important. As we finish the book of Colossians today, I want to point us back for a moment to the book of John, where Jesus, right before he is about to leave his disciples, right before he's about to go to the cross, has some important instructions for his disciples. And he says this in John 13. He says, little children, and he's talking to his, his disciples there, little children, it's a term of endearment. He says, yet a little while I am with you. 
You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. You see, Jesus is explaining to them, and they don't quite understand what he's referring to, but he's explaining to them, I'm going on a mission where you can't follow. You can't follow me here. This is something only I can accomplish. Only I can go to the cross. Only I can die for your sins. But then he leaves them with some instructions, and he says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this command, by you following what I'm telling you to do, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, the mark of a true church is a genuine love for one another. The mark of disciples, of people who are actually following Christ, is love for one another. And that's why Seth wanted to hear about you. And that's why it was so good to be able to sit in that meeting and report to him all of the wonderful things that this church over this summer has done to love one another. It's so encouraging to be able to say, we were following Christ's command. We were serving. We were loving. We were helping. We were supporting. There is love in this church for one another. And in a sense, as we've been going through the book of Colossians, we see what Jesus is talking about in Paul's letter to the Colossians. All of this book is essentially about this very command that Jesus gave to his disciples. Paul starts off his letter in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3. He says, As We always give thanks, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And what does he give thanks for? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul is his opening line to the Colossians church is. We give thanks for you. Why? Because we've heard of your faith. God is doing something in your heart. We thank Him for that. He is giving you faith in Him. He is giving you belief, and we thank Him for that. And not only has He given you this faith, He is also producing fruit through that faith. And what is that fruit? You follow His command. You love one another. You love the church universal. You love us. And he goes on and says that he, there's, a, there's a particular member of the church of Colossae who has left and has gone to see Paul in Rome, and Paul writes of him here in chapter 1. He, it's, it's this gentleman by the name of Epaphras who has left Colossians and is Colossae and has gone to Rome to be with Paul. And Paul says, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So, Epaphras has left Colossae, gone to Rome, so that he can probably deliver to Paul some kind of support, some kind of aid from the church of Colossae. And Epaphras has told Paul about the church's love for him. And what's interesting about this passage is what we learn here is that Colossae was not a church founded by Paul. 
As a matter of fact, it was Epaphras who must have learned the gospel somewhere else who came back to Colossae and who preached to the Colossians church and who planted that church. And Paul is writing back to them and saying, we've heard that you guys believe, that you guys love one another, and that you love us. And Paul continues and he says this, he, back to the church of Colossae, he says this, and so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you. See, Paul pours out his love back to the Colossians, praying for them constantly, praying that, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so that's the reason why he writes this book. That's the reason why he writes this incredible book that points them back to Christ. And he says this in verse 29, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy, with all of God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. All of Paul's efforts, all of Paul's writing here is out of love for the Colossian church. And then Paul concludes, this is what brings us to today, is Paul concludes his letter with a report similar to the one that we gave to Seth this past week. It is a report of those who labor alongside him for the sake of the gospel. And so that brings us to our passages today here in Colossians chapter 4, where we get a list of names. You know, this is, the, this is the, one of those those sermons that all pastors are like, oh my gosh, not only do I have to pronounce these names, but I also have to explain who all these people are, and it's not just one of those, you know, easy home run, knock it out of the park sermons, but I think there's a lot of things we can, we can uncover from looking at these names and seeing what the Apostle Paul has to say about each one of them, kind of understanding who these people are and how they fit into Paul's ministry and what lessons they can give to us today as a church. And so let's look at those together here today in Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 7. First he says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So just as Epaphras had left Colossae and gone to be with Paul in Rome, so Paul had sent somebody, this gentleman Tychicus, back to Colossae to deliver to them this letter. And so Tychicus is the faithful servant, that's what Paul calls him, a fellow servant alongside Paul, leaves Rome, travels along in this dangerous journey back to Colossae, and he delivers this letter to the Colossians people. And we know a little bit about Tychicus. He's mentioned in Acts uh, chapter 20 as one of the uh, fellow travelers with Paul. So he's been with Paul on lots of his journeys. He travels with Paul most of the ways he, places he goes. And he actually is mentioned elsewhere in the book of Ephesians as having delivered that letter to the Ephesians church. So he appears to be in Scripture this very important content. They didn't have email. They didn't have the Pony Express even. All they could do to deliver letters from one place to another was take it themselves, to appoint somebody to deliver the news and go on the journey themselves to deliver these important words 
to the churches, and that's Tychicus's role. Faithful fellow servant with Paul. And Paul continues, and he says, and with, with him, Onesimus, your faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So both Tychicus and Onesimus are coming to Colossae, and one of those individuals, Onesimus, who we'll talk about a little bit more later, is of Coloss- He's from Colossae. He is a fellow Colossians alongside the Colossians. And so Paul says, he's coming back to you, and that's an important element of the story here, and he comes back to them, and their mission, their role is to tell the Colossians church everything that Paul is doing in Rome and what benefit it's having for the kingdom of God. So those are the ones that we read about that are sent. In the next verses, we read about some of the ones who stay with Paul. So let's look at some of those names briefly. In Colossians 4, 10 through 14, we read this. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision, these are Jews that he's talking about, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, greets you. So Epaphras, who, again, we talked about earlier, had left Colossae, had come to Rome. Paul is writing back to the Colossians and saying, he's here with me, and he sends his greetings to you as well. Who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. So we get this list of names, and let's kind of go over each one of them and kind of understand who these individuals are as best we can. Aristarchus is a Jewish believer who apparently came to Christ in Thessalonica, so we know that about him, and he was with Paul in Ephesus when Paul was arrested. So Aristarchus was a fellow traveler with Paul. We learn, again, we learn about that in the book of Acts, and he was in Ephesus. Paul is arrested there, and that begins the process of his trial, which eventually brings him on to Rome. Now, an interesting point about Aristarchus is that it is believed that he was able to travel with Paul through all of his trials, through all of his imprisonments, in part because he willingly made himself Paul's legal slave. And so he was able to kind of continue with Paul on his journey because he was legally attached to Paul so he could serve him. And so he did this. He, he gave Paul this, this service in his life so that he could travel with him, whether Paul was in prison or whether Paul was out preaching anywhere on his own, free. And so Aristarchus is this, is this faithful brother who is so closely tied to Paul that he's willing to say, look, where you go, I go. doesn't matter. Even if it's to prison in Rome, I'm following you. I'm going with you. And we all hope for friends like that, don't we? Then we read of this individual, Mark, who we believe is the same John Mark who writes the gospel of Mark. And of course, you know, he's famous in his own right for that, also known for being an associate of Peter. But one of the reasons why Mark becomes an associate of Peter 
is because we also learn in the book of Acts in chapters 13 and 15 that Mark, who's described here as the cousin of Barnabas, has a falling out in ministry with Paul. So Paul and Mark and Barnabas go on several missionary journeys, and as they're on these journeys, um, they, they disagree. They come to a point in the road where they say, I want to, Paul says, I want to go this way, and Mark and Barnabas say, we want to go this way. We think that God's calling us over here. And they have this argument over about what they should be doing, and it causes a rupture in their ministry together, and they part ways, somewhat frustrated with each other to go on different paths. And here you can see kind of in the, in the course of God's providence, they have been reunited together in Rome. And so Paul sends back a greeting to the Colossians saying, Mark is here with me, and he sends his greetings. And there's been some kind of reconciliation here because what Paul says is like, if he comes to you, because he's about to go out again, you know, he's about to be, leave again, if he comes to you, welcome him. And so these wounds that may have been formed at some point in their relationship as co-ministers together have been healed by the grace of God. And there's great hope in that because when you're on mission together, right, you can overcome disagreements. This is a, a great moment where you kind of see in church history restoration of two people who were at odds with one another coming back together because they share a common mission, a common purpose. And anybody who's been in the church world for any period of time knows that there are all kinds of circumstances that come up where brothers in Christ disagree and there's conflict. This church also has gone through that kind of conflict. We've had a pastor leave. We've had people who, who have left this church because they disagree with something about some kind of philosophy of ministry or because some other reason that they decided to leave. And that's fine. That happens in the ministry. That happens in the church. But the great thing we learn from this passage, I think, one of the great benefits of it is to see that because we're on mission together, there's always the possibility, always the hope of reconciliation and restoration. And so Paul sends his greetings to the Colossians from Mark. Then we read of this interesting gentleman by the name of Jesus, or maybe we should pronounce it Jesus. I don't know. I mean, I... Uh, it's, it's always interesting when you read in Scripture the name Jesus, and it's not associated with the person of Jesus. But sometimes I think, you know, when I look at this passage, I think, well, maybe the, the sole reason why God in His providence put this individual's name in the book of Colossians is to make it clear to all future generations that the power that we have in the name of Jesus is not in some five-letter spelling of a word. Okay? The name Jesus was a common Hebrew name. And we don't look at you know, Jesus and say it has some kind of powerful or magical incantation in those five letters. The reason why we praise the name of Jesus is not because of the name J, not because it's spelled J-E-S-U-S, or in Hebrew, Yeshua, right? The reason why we, there's power in that name is because of who he is, because he's Jesus Christ because he's the anointed one. And so here in God's providence, we see in this, this scenario, or this, 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 uh, these passages, Jesus, who was called Justice, this individual who had the same name, the same you know, uh, 
first name as Jesus, or the same given name as Jesus, but who's clearly a different person and who is also a fellow co-worker with Paul, who sends his greeting back to the book of Colossians, okay? And Paul makes it clear here, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. These are the only Jews that Paul has with him that are co-workers, co-laborers with him in his mission. And Paul feels it important to remark about that here. Then Paul goes on to some other names. He talks about, again, Epaphras, which we've who we've mentioned, the one who left Colossae to go on to Rome. And what's interesting about Paul's conversation here about Epaphras is that it looks like, you know, he's, he's planted this church here in Colossae, and then they have now sent him on to assist Paul, kind of as a missionary going out into the world. So he goes out with Paul. He's now on mission, and it appears as if he's supported by three churches, you know, our church supports missionaries, and, and a couple months ago, we had the Sandozes come in, Neil came in, and he was able to, we, I think we watched a video from them about them talking about their mission where they're out in Kenya in the South Sudan, and uh, they were kind of reporting back to this church about their mission work there and kind of how it was proceeding. And so, we have missionaries that we support, and here in this passage, we kind of see something similar where Epaphras appears to have been supported in his missionary efforts by the church of Colossae, by the church at Laodicea, and by the church at Hierapolis. And so Paul is reporting back to them, he is working hard for you. He is doing you proud. And not only is he working hard for you, he also prays unceasingly for you. He loves you, and he prays for you. So Paul calls him out for that. Then we see two names who are also very interesting, Luke, the physician. And of course, this is the passage where we learn that Luke, the author of the book of Luke and of the book of Acts, is a physician. That's his, what he does. He's a doctor. And so here, Paul describes him as Luke the physician greets you. Now, it's interesting that Luke is in Rome with Paul, and one of the interesting features of that is that it's very possible, as we think about the book of Luke and as we think about the book of Acts, that, Paul, that Luke wrote those books to assist Paul in explaining to the Roman authorities who were in Rome why this man Paul was standing before them. It's kind of a legal brief. So he goes and he researches, he finds out all of the events that lead Paul, that lead to the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, whom Paul worships, and then he writes the book of Acts to kind of explain the formation of the early church, and then one of the most significant events in the book of Acts is what? It's the conversion of Paul, right? And it's the ministry journeys and the ministry of Paul throughout the world, terminating with his arrest and his appearance before the Roman governor of Judea and the king of Judea, Agrippa and Festus. And so it's that explanation that, 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 that is the reasons why it's very possible that Luke took 
to writing these two books so that he could, on Paul's behalf, allow Paul to present this to the Roman authorities so that they could understand why this person who stood accused of this rebellious behavior against Caesar was standing before their court. And so Luke is there in Rome, perhaps even to deliver this material to the Apostle Paul and to the Roman court, which has now been memorialized for us in sacred scripture. And then we have this gentleman, Demas, who is described here only as a fellow worker. But it's interesting about Demas. What's interesting about him is that we find out elsewhere in Scripture, pretty sure it's the same person. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 10, Demas is reported by Paul to Timothy as having fallen away. And Paul, still in prison in his last days of his ministry, shortly before his execution, says about Demas, he says, he loved the world. He loved the world, and so he has abandoned me. And we get this discouraging report, and I think it's here to teach us in some sense that there are many times in which we, we think that people are believers, we think that they're with us on the mission, only to find out later that they weren't, that they loved something else more. Which as we finish these kind of names that we've kind of been going through brings me to my second point. True friends, true friends share the mission together. True friends share the mission together. You see, Paul has just gone through in this chapter a list of people who are very important to him, who are his friends, who uphold him in his ministry who encourage him as he, in this case, sits in prison writing this letter. These are his friends. And as he's talking about these friends, we need to think about the nature of our friendships. You see, it's very possible in this world to have things that very closely approach true friendship, but are actually based on things in this world. They're based on things in this world. I mean, we can think of a lot of situations where we can become friends with somebody. Maybe we share common interests. Maybe we have, you know, a common interest in a sports team. Maybe we have a common interest in various games that we play or, or things that we do, hobbies that we have, our golfing buddy or the, the, the guy or the girl that we, um, you know, have a shared interest with. Maybe it's... Um, uh, you know, some kind of game that we play together. We can have friends that we are connected with through things like work. We can have friends that we are connected through by ambition because, you know, we have the desire to achieve something or to gain something, and they come alongside with us to help us achieve or gain that earthly thing. Maybe it's a, a political position or some kind of position at work or success in some kind of business enterprise. We can have people that we form friendships with out of shared political identities or even shared nationalities. If you go to many places, you might go to a, a country where 
there are very few Americans, and you might meet the local American, you might say, hey, we can be friends because, you know, we're from the same country, and we might get each other a little bit easier. You can share friendships based on those kinds of things. You can even share friendships based on something like a shared experience, right? We went to college together. We went to high school together. And there's, those friendships are not insignificant. Don't hear me saying that those aren't real friendships in any sense of the word. One of the most important, you know, ways in which one of the most profound friendships come from shared experiences. I'm, you know, reminded of, uh, you know, the great uh, speech given by Henry V in the Shakespearean play, Henry V, and it's become kind of immortalized in, uh, you know, popular culture in the, in the miniseries. Maybe some of you watched the miniseries Band of Brothers when that came out years ago, 10 or 20 years ago, that memorialized the efforts of the 101st Airborne Division and uh, the, the brothership that was formed amongst those men. And, you know, in that speech, Henry V um, state makes a, he, he, part of the speech, he says this, he says, we few, as they're about to face this huge army, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he who fights this day with me shall be my brother, right? That's the, that's the catchphrase that has become so close, band of brothers, people who are in a battle together, who are fighting together for a common cause, and the friendships that can form as a result of that common cause together. There are some profound friendships that are formed because of these kinds of things. So I don't want to diminish that as insignificant. But here's the reality. The only true the only lasting, the only eternal friendships must be founded on eternal things. They must be established on eternal things. You see, I can form incredibly profound friendships. Anybody can, somebody can, for fighting alongside, shoulder to shoulder with other people for their country, right? But countries come and go. Nations rise and nations fall. Even that bond, bond is not eternal. There is only one foundation, only one mission, only one shared experience that is eternal. And that is friendship and service to Christ our King. That is our mission. You see, we have a greater king than Henry V, right? We have a brotherhood that goes beyond any earthly kingdom or any earthly goal. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, talks about the, the four loves that were common in the Greek lexicon, in the Greek vocabulary, and here they are. The, the four loves are are the loves in the Greek name storge, which is the word for love in a familial relationship. It's the, it's the kind of love that we have for family members, right? Then there's eros, which is kind of the romantic love. And one of the ways he described uh, romantic love in the, in the book, The Four Loves, is he says it's a, it's a love that's face-to-face. It's a love that's face-to-face. -face. It's, it's two lovers, two individuals who, who look at each other and who are captivated by one another so that their focus is on each other. 
right? And then he describes the third kind, phileo love, which is friendship love, right? Phileo love, friendship love. And the way he describes love in this sense is love that's side by side. You know, two people who are in love with each other, a man and a woman who love each other, they can't stop talking about each other. But two friends who have this kind of phileo love, they don't spend all day saying, you know, Luke, those glasses, oh, they're so amazing, you know. Johnny, your beard is just phenomenal. You know, they don't talk about those kinds of things with one another. Their interests are outward. They are side by side. It is mission-oriented. It is, what are we going to do today? Are we going to go play golf today? What kind of fun are we going to have today? What kind of mission are we going to tackle together? What are we going to do together? That's the sense of phileo love, mission or, or friendship that is side by side. Mission-oriented love. Band of brothers love. And encapsulating all three of those types of love is the fourth kind, agape love. Agape love. The uniquely Christian love. The true love that comes from loving God first and then letting his love flow through you. You see, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about marriage and how fundamental it is for God's purpose in the world. Marriage is the only relationship in the world where all four of these loves can be present in the same relationship. You get married to somebody, and immediately they become your family. And as they become your family, you have that familial type of love between the two of you. The second thing, though, is that, that eros, that, that romantic love, that's available to you in the marital relationship, isn't it? Where you can look into the eyes of the person you love and tell them all that's beautiful about them, all that's wonderful about them. And then you have that phileo love together. Because if all it stays at is that, that uh, eros love, it's not enough. That'll fade over time, but if you have phileo love with one another, where you stand not only face to face, but side by side, then you have something even greater. And if the mission that you're standing side by side in is the mission of God, then that love can be an eternal love. It can be a true love. And that's why marriage is the fundamental unit of God's redemptive plan. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. Last night, I went with my best friend, my wife, Jessica, on a date. And we went to the Garth Brooks concert. And as we were there at the Garth Brooks concert, he's a phenomenal performer, just incredible. I mean, just, just what a fun night the two of us had. But I knew I had to preach the next morning. And he just keeps going. <laughs> he doesn't stop. And so the concert started a little bit late, and then we're there, and it's getting later and later and later into the night, but each song that he starts to sing is better than the one before. And what was keeping me there primarily, besides the great time I was having, was that he hadn't played it yet. And I think you may, most of you probably know, if you know much about Garth Brooks, is what it is 
if you've ever gone to a Garth Brooks concert. You're just waiting to hear a simple chord, right? And last night, as he strummed that chord, that dun-dun-dun-dun, you know, you just start, the crowd just erupted. You know, and then he starts singing, blaming all of my roots. I showed up in boots and ruined this sermon illustration, you know. And so there he was singing Friends in Low Places, and as he sung that song, you know, I was, you know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about you. <laughs> and I say that in the most loving way because, you know, I stand up here on this stage, and there you guys are down there in, you know, low places. But uh, in all seriousness, you know, there he is singing about this song, about these friends that he have that pick him up when he is down, that are down there with him in the gutter, and here's Paul in this letter talking about his friends. He's not talking about kings. He's not talking about really important people that he knows. He's talking about people who are in prison with him. He's talking about friends in low places with him. And he's talking about these friends, and the reason why he can talk about them in such glowing terms is because these friends in low places, and this is what he's labored the entire letter to get you, to get us to understand, is that the reason why he can talk about these friends in low places with such glowing terms is because they serve one friend in high places, in a high place. They serve Christ in heaven. Jesus, as he's continuing his discussion with his disciples in John chapter 15, as he continues this, he says this in verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. See, he's still on the same topic two chapters later. I commands you to love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And now what is that fruit? That you love one another and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. See, he calls us to serve. And he goes forward from that moment to serve as the supreme example of what that looks like by laying down his life for us. And he calls us to do the same for each other. See, there is freedom and love and serving each other.
There is freedom and love in serving one another. A couple weeks ago, I skipped over a few passages that were kind of important to the book. A lot of questions come up about these passages in the book of Colossians, and I kind of skipped over them, didn't have enough time to get to them. I want to just cover them briefly, because I think they come in crystal clearly in the context of what we've just been talking about. Right after talking about husbands and wives and children, Paul says this in chapter 3, verses 22, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters. Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You see, Paul's language, if we kind of just take it out of context, is jarring to modern ears. Because here is Paul talking to people who in all essence, in all legal status, are enslaved to earthly masters. And he doesn't enjoin them to break free your bonds, break free your change, and go and do whatever you want to do. He says, no, continue serving. Continue serving. Not with insincerity. Not begrudgingly. Not as eye service. But as pleasing to the Lord. Because He is your master. Then he goes on to say, look, your masters are going to be judged on how they treated you. And you're going to be judged on how well you served. You see, Paul is not afraid of service. He's not afraid of service. The gentleman Onesimus, who we talked about earlier, was a slave himself. And he was with Paul because he ran away from his master to be with Paul. And when he gets to Paul in Rome, Paul says, Onesimus, I know you love me. I know you want to serve me. But you should go back. And so Paul writes a letter for Onesimus that we find in Scripture, the book of Philemon, and says, Onesimus is coming back to you, Philemon. You are a believer. You are a brother in Christ. Accept Onesimus back. I know he ran away. Accept him back. And he enjoins Onesimus to go back and serve here. He says, serve Philemon well. And he tells Philemon in the book of Philemon, treat Onesimus as a brother. And when he writes about Onesimus in the book of Colossians, he doesn't say, I'm sending you back to Onesimus, the slave. He says, I'm sending you back Onesimus, your fellow brother. You see, Onesimus is free in every sense of the word, in every true sense of the word, even though he serves Philemon. Because who he's really serving is Christ. And by serving Christ, he is enjoined by Paul to serve his brother Philemon, who he's legally obligated to. And there is no shame in that. You see, in Christ, there is no, this isn't an issue of rank. It's not an issue of superiority. It's not an issue of who is better. God will judge that in the end. It's an issue of obedience to Christ. 
and for all of us to serve. Our master in heaven came down and died for us. He died for us. He served us. And he didn't do it because his rank was lower. He did it out of obedience to his father and the will of God. And so Paul finishes the book this way. In verses 15 through 18, he says this, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Archippus, ah, one of those names, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. You see, we get these last two names here. One is to this woman, Nympha, who all apparent, and apparently uh, had a church in her home. She served the church by opening up her home and hosting the church with all hospitality that comes along with that. So we read about her. We also read about this letter to the Laodiceans. Now, there's a couple of possibilities here because a lot of questions come up about this. Is there another letter out there that we don't have in sacred scripture that we should be aware about? And you know, there's two possibilities here. It's a possibility that maybe, yes, there is, and maybe by the, you know, the providence of the Holy Spirit, we just don't have access to it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Maybe it just doesn't add anything to the canon of Scripture. The other possibility here is that uh, uh, the letter that's being referred to here is actually the book of Ephesians. And as we see here, just as Paul's letter was originally written to Colossae, and then he's saying, now pass that on to the Laodiceans, the book of, uh, or the, his letter to the Ephesians is also a similar type situation where they were passing these letters around, instructing the churches in basic doctrine as you do. And so many have speculated, and I think this is probably the most likely scenario, that since Laodicea is kind of the newer church plant, they're now getting the same letters that uh, we, the Colossians have read, and they're passing it along to the Laodiceans so they can read the same thing. So my opinion, the book of the, the letter to the Laodiceans is the letter to the Ephesians uh, as well. But the last instruction here is to the church at Laodicea, to uh, a, a man by the name of Archippus. And they're supposed to say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. That's their instructions to him. And uh, uh, Archippus is probably, we think he's Philemon's son, and just as Philemon was a Colossian believer, he was in the, in the uh, uh, church at Colossae, uh, we think that they sent out church planters to Laodicea to plant the church there in Laodicea. So these all churches are all kind of connected to one another. And Archippus is the church planter, right? He's the one who left the son of Philemon, this, this you know, wealthy Colossian believer who sends his son, who's also a believer, to Laodicea to plant that church. And so here the exhortation is, make sure you remind him to do what he went there to do. Okay? Make sure you, you exhort him uh, to, uh, to do his job, to do his duty, to fulfill his ministry. And obviously, that, that's some weight for this church. There's a role for the church to look to their leaders and to, to tell their leaders, you know, we support you, fulfill your ministry. Lead us. 
And how incredibly important is that call as Pastor Seth comes back to us after sabbatical, the call to have him lead us. Of course, the final task there is to determine how all of us can serve the church, isn't it? How all of us can, can serve here. And of course, there are so many opportunities to serve at this church. As we kind of wrap up today, the opportunities we've been discussing over the past several weeks as we enter into the school season, there are all kinds of opportunities to serve one another. Number one, just by developing close friendships, putting effort into that, being faithful over time, taking people out for dinner, inviting them to your house, being good company, enjoying hobbies with one another. Those are important things while also never losing sight of the mission. This isn't a social club. We are a missional organization on mission from God. And of course, we've talked about here at C3, the opportunities to serve on road crew, the opportunities to serve in the kids' ministry. There are still plenty of slots available for the fall as you're thinking about ways that you can serve here. We would love for you to plug in in the kids' ministry if you are able to be a community group leader here if you're interested, to host people in your home throughout the week, or to serve on one of our missions, whether that is Feed Teach Hope. We always need help with Feed Teach Hope and organizing things and, and uh, helping to raise funds or kids' meals or under over fellowship. There are plenty of ways to serve here, each other. Takeaway is this. Because Christ is our good King, we serve Him and one another, and that is freedom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy for all that you do. Lord, and we pray that as we consider what you have done through the people of God in the past, that we would be the people of God in the present who love one another well, who serve one another who grow deep friendships, who stand next to one another, who stand shoulder to shoulder on the mission of God to declare the glory of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Make us a church who does that. In your name we pray. Amen.